Hello and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 29. He didn't have time to be immobilized by grief. With the Bambi crew crawling ahead at Seward Street, that fall, Walt began to refocus on Pinocchio, once again analyzing scenes, assigning animation, recording voices, reviewing Leica reels, and most of all, constructing a new story arc. To solve the problem of Pinocchio's moral aimlessness, the emphasis in identification had shifted to the cricket, Jiminy, as he was now named, as a moral agent and conscience. During the hiatus that spring and summer, Jiminy's role had been substantially expanded, and the singer-comedian Cliff Edwards had been hired to voice him. There's a note. Walt was taking a somewhat different attitude to casting voices now after the triumph of Snow White. He wanted to get a popular child actor named Frankie Darrow to play Pinocchio's dissolute companion, Lampwick, and confidently predicted he would. When you get people like Burgess Meredith who want to do the voice, certain actors who want to do voices for our characters, they look at it differently than they used to. He now suggested they give screen credit to the actors so it attaches some importance to it and a certain prestige, because we need those good actors, you know. Okay. Unlike for Bambi, Walt generally attended the story meetings and made suggestions, everything from the kind of music best suited for the undersea sequence, vibra harps and soft temple blocks, to Pinocchio's reaction to his, to his transformation into a donkey. His little laugh goes into a hee-haw as he tests it. He swallows. It's him. To the seriousness with which Jiminy Cricket should accept his assignment as Pinocchio's conscience. By December, Walt declared himself pleased. The general outline seems pretty good to me now, he told the story staff. In other words, I think we can safely go ahead. We have tried it every way, and I feel that it's safe. In reality, given the schedule and the need for a feature, he had no choice but to approve the material. Walt made, however, one last fix. That January, he met with Bill Cottrell and Jackson and Ted Sears, Dorothy Blank, and Dick Creedon of the story department to discuss the possibility of Jiminy Cricket becoming not only the moral center of the film, but also its narrator. I kind of like that where he starts to tell a story in this little prologue affair some way. Walt said, then proceeded to describe Jiminy's new entrance as the camera tracks through the village and into Geppetto's window, while Jiminy sings When You Wish Upon a Star, stopping to tell his story. This tracking scene would, in the final film, be one of the most striking uses of the multiplane camera, and it wound up costing nearly $50,000. Centralizing Jiminy Cricket in this way and unifying the film around him seemed to have solved the film's major problem, but it created another. While the Cricket had now been thoroughly conceptualized in narrative terms, no one seemed to know how he ought to look. Ham Lusk suggested that Walt talk to Ward Kimball. Kimball had been stewing ever since Walt had cut his scenes from Snow White and he had decided to quit. He was in Walt's office to tender his resignation when Walt began his sales pitch talking about Jiminy and how he reminded him of his own beloved adult Uncle Ed. Then he asked Kimball if he would take control of him. God, he did such a wonderful job, Kimball remembered, that I walked out very happily and said, what a wonderful place this is. Kimball set about designing a sort of halfway thing with bulging highs, a top hat, teeth, feelers, arms, and an elongated body with thick legs. Walt was unimpressed. 
We can't have a character like that. He's got to be cute, he said, issuing the same injunction he had used for the new Mickey Mouse. That's too gross. So Kimball went back to his drawing board and converted him into a little man with an oversized head. Though Jiminy now bore no resemblance to a cricket, Walt was pleased. As Kimball put it, he was a cricket because we called him a cricket. That still left Pinocchio in the ongoing debate about whether he was more a wooden puppet or a little boy. The wooden concept made sense. He was a puppet who later became a boy, but Walt had seen the footage that Fred Moore had animated and, as Ollie Johnston remembered, felt the character needed to be more appealing, just like Jiminy. Milt Call had been critical of the character, thinking that he didn't move well, so Lusk, who had recommended Kimball for Jiminy, recommended that Call take a crack at Pinocchio himself and make him essentially a boy with, a wood with wooden joints. Call accepted the challenge, animated the scene of Pinocchio under sea knocking on an oyster shell, and then showed it to Walt, who Johnston said flipped. Even Fred Moore was impressed, though the redesign knocked him from his perch as the most favored animator in the studio. From that point on, Call was in charge of animating Pinocchio, assisted by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, while Moore animated Lampwick, Pinocchio's dissolute guide on Pleasure Island, a character with more than a passing resemblance to Moore himself. But even having resolved the narrative problems and having settled on Jiminy and a more boy-like Pinocchio, Walt was concerned. He knew that Pinocchio was more conventional than Bambi or the concert feature. That was, that was precisely why he felt he could hasten it into a production. But he didn't want it to be just another cartoon, a Snow White knockoff. It was imperative that it be bigger, grander, and more realistically animated. Otherwise, there was no aesthetic reason to make it. Indeed, one of the reasons Walt was so intent on an underwater sequence was that, as he wrote, Otto Englander, it all gives us a chance for something very fantastic. Though virtually the entire film was already being shot in live action for rotoscoping, Walt had asked artist Joe Grant, who was an excellent caricaturist, how they might improve their technique. Grant suggested a model department where they could fashion little statues of the characters so that the animators could study them from different angles. He had, in fact, fashioned just such a statue for the crone in Snow White. Walt agreed, and then put Grant in charge. Eventually, they built models not only of the characters, but of inanimate objects like the cage into which Pinocchio is thrown, then filmed it swinging so they could trace the photostats. Walt also wanted even more dimensionality to the backgrounds and characters than he had had in Snow White, so he devised yet another system of application of paint called a blend that combined dry brushing and airbrushing to create roundness, especially on cheeks. It was an extremely expensive process. By one account, there were 20 women in the airbrush department alone, and Walt advised they use it sparingly. We must keep from going broke on this picture, but he nevertheless insisted upon it as a way of bettering the look of Snow White. Jiminy Cricket alone had 27 parts and 27 different colors. As Frank Thomas later told an interviewer, this was an era when he wanted things to be real. He wanted it to be round, solid, reaching for perfection. But Pinocchio had become a chore, an obligation. Walt's real obsession now was the concert feature. He would tell the animators that, as Ollie Johnston put it, it would change the history of motion pictures. The concert feature would be entirely different from anything he had done. I don't think it will be common, he told his staff. We've always wanted to do this sort of thing, but couldn't risk it, between a newsreel and a feature. 
Now, because Snow White had given him the aesthetic capital to do so, they could. All that summer, even as he was hard at work on Pinocchio, he was edgy, waiting for Stokowski to return from Europe, where the conductor was visiting composer's relatives, among them Debussy's widow and Ravel's brother, to secure releases for possible musical selections, even writing to Walden Code for fear that he would be found out and co-opted. When Stokowski when Stokowski arrived back in Los Angeles in September 1938, along with the critic Deems Taylor, Walt couldn't wait to start listening to and selecting music. The three of them spent virtually the entire month in Room 232, listening to records of classical pieces, dozens of them, and pondering possible visualizations. Paganini's Moto Perpetuo or Mosolov's Iron Foundry, we could do something good with machinery, Walt said, Stravinsky's The Firebird, Renard or Petrochka, Prokofiev's Love, Love for Three Oranges, Gonad's Funeral March of a Marionette, Mussorgsky's Song of a Flea, with opera star Lawrence Tibet scratching himself during the performance, Berlioz's Roman Carnival, a work of Debussy's that Walt called Fate, Wagner's Ring of the Nibel... Nibelungen, which one staff member suggested might be used for a new children's story called The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Ooh, I have to stop there. So Walt Disney heard of The Hobbit. I can't even. I, wow. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> and even a symphonic rendering of Pop Goes the Weasel. They debated whether to, whether to introduce a single pianist for a piece. Walt wanted Rachman Rachmaninoff, I guess, and thought of having a Russian scene with snow falling and the snow turning into crystal formations and whether to include American pieces. Walt decided that Americans wouldn't feel insulted if you left the American music out, while Stokowski declared Disney is a genius who is going into new things. To go back to Swanee River and that sentimental stuff, it isn't for this picture, I don't think. For all the deliberate, intense scrutiny of each score, Walt could barely contain his enthusiasm. After dragging along on Bambi and Pinocchio, hitting roadblock after roadblock, he told, he told Stokowski that he was going to assign a number of units to the concert feature and thought he could rough out a story in two to three weeks once they settled on the compositions. That way, when Stokowski returned to the studio in January, they could actually begin the orchestrations and record the music by the spring. They made an odd pair, the epitome of the classical artist and the epitome of the commercial artist, which may have been part of the personal attraction, just as it was part of the artistic partnership. Stokowski seemed to love the free-spiritedness of the Disney studio. Walt seemed to love the highbrow legitimization that Stokowski bestowed. At times, they could sit together, usually with Deems Taylor, and listen to music for hours. At other times, as one animator described it, Stokowski would be swooping through the halls, followed by Disney and a retinue of writers and story sketchmen, all struggling to keep pace. At meetings, Walt was deferential to his partner. As informal as he was, he always called his associate Mr. Stokowski, never Leopold or Stokey, which was his nickname, and he always privileged Stokowski's opinions, rarely, contra rarely contradicting him. But for all the comedy and real friendship between them, that's C-O-M-I-T-Y, comedy, sometimes the cultures clashed. 
At one session, Walt kept turning up the volume when the music was soft and turning it down when the music was loud, prompting Stokowski to explode, what is loud should be loud and what is soft should be soft. And if Stokowski could reprimand Walt, Walt wasn't above poking fun at his esteemed partner. At a recording session, he remarked to a colleague that Stokowski, with his long hair, looked like the comedian Harpo Marx. Still, despite their different places in the cultural constellation, the two did share a sense of entertainment and bombast. Discussing one especially loud section of music, Walt compared it to blowing the top off the mountain, adding, Stokowski loves to do it. He would blow the top off the speakers on this. Of course, so would Walt. After two months of labor, Walt, Stokowski, and Taylor had winnowed the compositions to roughly a dozen, and on the evening of September 29, 1938, Walt convened 50 to 60 of his artists on the soundstage for a two-and-a-half-hour piano concert while he provided a running commentary on what the audience would be seeing in the feature. He also showed them a rough of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which, according to one attendee, had them cheering and applauding until all hands were red. As this observer saw it, it seemed indeed as if Walt and his boys had crossed a threshold into a truly new art form. Clearly inspired, Walt, Stokowski, and Taylor, in a post-mortem the next, me the next morning, promptly lopped promptly lopped off an overture, the piano solo, Moto Perpetuo, and with startling confidence, selected the final compositions. Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, Pierney's Cidalis and the Goatfoot, Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker Suite, Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain, Schubert's Ave Maria, Ponticelli's Dance of the Hours, Debussy's Claire de Lune, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, and of course, Dukas's The Sorcerer's Apprentice, for a total running time of just over two hours. I don't know what more the audience would want for their money, do you? Walt beamed to his collaborators. He was already setting crews to work on each sequence, ending what may have been the most productive month of his life. Walt was happy, and the story meetings on the concert feature that fall were smaller and much more playful and freewheeling than the meetings on Bambi or Pinocchio. In part, it was because this time Walt wasn't carrying the entire burden. Since he clearly didn't know as much about music as his collaborators, he was sharing the burden with Stokowski and Taylor. Another reason was that Walt didn't feel he had to have the entire movie in his hand, in his head. Since, since this was not a densely plotted film, he could brainstorm and experiment. We're searching here, trying to get away from the cut and dried handling of things all the way through everything, he told his story crew, with what seemed a sense of relief, and the only way to do it is to leave things open until we have completely explored every bit of it. In fact, his concerns were less aesthetic than cultural. Though he would later be accused of, bod of bodlerizing the compositions, Walt was nearly reverential toward the scores, fearing to make any cuts and worrying what the reaction would be if he departed from the composer's stated idea for a piece of program music. It was Stokowski who assured him that cutting a score was perfectly acceptable. It is like pruning a tree. It sometimes grows stronger from pruning and that providing one's own visual interpretation of the music was fine if the spirit of the music is with us. 
But the main reason Walt was so enthusiastic about the concert feature was that he felt he was blazing trails again. The effect was liberating. Having already expressed his antagonism toward gags, he was now expressing antagonism toward the idea of narrative itself. Not everything had to connect, he instructed his storymen. Not everything had to be worked out in story terms. I know everybody has the tendency to have to have story, he told a meeting on the concert feature, but I keep telling myself that this is different. We're presenting music, which meant that the score wouldn't just embellish the visuals, but would be absolutely co-equal to them. I would like to have this thing kind of weave itself together and complete itself, but not have a plot. At another meeting, describing admiringly a recent package of eight unrelated shorts that the studio was releasing that September as a kind of test run for the concert feature, he told his story crew that the story annoys you. But Walt wasn't thinking only in terms of new narrative departures. He was thinking of the concert feature as an entirely new kind of theatrical experience. Watching a Pete Smith short called Audioscopics, for which he donned, a special donned special glasses to see a three-dimensional effect, Walt got the idea of using a similar effect for a sequence in his film and attaching glasses to the top of the program, and he set one of his special effects men to work on it. He also discussed with Stokowski the possibility of wafting perfume into the theater during the scenes with flowers. I'm serious about this whole perfume idea, he told Stokowski. You could space the perfume to come in only at certain times. Most of all, he latched onto the idea of devising a new sound reproduction system for the movie, one with a speaker at the front and center of the theater, and other speakers to the left and right and down the sides to convey a sense of a full orchestra. It would be quite a sensation if you get that dimensional thing on the screen and have the horns working with it, Walt said. The sound and pictures will be around you. He called it Fantasound. That fall, as he was concocting new ways of presenting his film, he began working through the visuals with the same determination and enthusiasm that he had lavished on the music. For Toccata and Fugu, he had decided to put the oscillations of the optical soundtrack on the screen and dispense with any representational depictions, but he warned special effects man Cy Young, we don't want to follow what anyone else has done in the abstract. For Night on Bald Mountain, Walt had the idea of having the devil playing either a violin or an organ and rising from the depths of a volcano, a sort of mad musician gloating over the effect his music has on the spirits. Later, in fact, at three and a half hour long meeting, at a three and a half hour long meeting on the afternoon of the studio concert, he had elaborated the idea into the devil as a huge gulliver in the village with his cloak blowing and all these spirits around these houses, which would be accompanied by the sound of a wind sweeping across the theater thanks to the new sound system. For Cedalese, Walt thought of centaurs and fauns frolicking on an Elysian field where an old fawn is holding class at a mythological music school and keeps having to scold a smart-alecky young fawn. Then he decided to add a scene with centaurettes and a finale in which the fawns chase the centaurettes. But he had doubts about the fawns. If you treat them as being cute, you can't be too cruel to them, thinking that centaurs might serve just as well, and he began to doubt whether the music itself fit the images he had in mind. When Dick Humor suggested that they hire Stravinsky to write something, Walt countered, those guys don't work that way, though he was so confident of his efforts that he told Humor he could foresee the time when composers would write for animation as they wrote for the stage. 
For Dance of the Hours, Walt, citing the illustrations of Heinrich Clay, imagined a ballet of animals with each group representing a different time of day. Ostriches dawn, hippopotamuses day, elephants evening, and alligators night. But he objected to any obvious slapstick type stuff to which the animals might lend themselves. I think the main thing we must keep in mind is that the animals are serious, Walt told his story crew. They are not clowning. He wanted real personality. It could be some big fat person up there trying to do a ballet. That's what we're going to drive for and we will have animators who can give us that. By November, Walt was having young Marjorie Belcher, who had served as the live model for Snow White, perform on film to give the animators suggestions, though Walt himself seemed inspired too, tossing off ideas with the same excitement and detail as he had on Snow White. Visualizing a dance between a hippo and the alligator, he said, I think there, I think there at the end, the guy finally just lets her drop. Boom, and it bounces everything in the background. You see the expression on her face, blank, and immediately she goes into one of those poses. The Nutcracker Suite was harder, in part because it had several sections. At first, Walt had the idea of fading in from Stokowski leading his orchestra to his leading an orchestra of bugs in a kind of overture. That would lead into a March processional, the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy with dewdrops, dewdrops, and a Russian dance with turtles that would segue, or segue into the Chinese dance featuring lizards with flowers on their heads like Chinese hats, who performed before a mandarin frog, and the Arab dance using little animals. The finale would be a flower ballet following the blossoms through the seasons. As Walt described it, a ballerina comes out, a graceful, beautiful girl, and she puts a little sex into the damn thing. When she whirls up, you see the panties in her little butt. It'll be swell. The audience will rave if you can make them feel sex in a flower. At the end, leaves would fall over the dancers as the flowers exhaust themselves. As the leaves continued to fall, the film would return to the orchestra, now in shadow. But on the contrary, the audience will rave if you can make them feel sex in a flower. At the end, leaves would fall over the dancers as the flowers exhaust themselves. As the leaves continued to fall, the film would return to the orchestra, now in shadow. But on the concert feature, nothing was set in stone. By November, Walt had reconsidered, then reincorporated, and finally dropped the overture entirely. You mean it's okay? Walt asked his staff incredulously, as he would never have asked on Snow White. I expected a battle. Replaced the turtles of the, of the turtles of the Russian dance with thistles, and eliminated the little animals of the Arab dance for what he called an underwater extravaganza embodying all types of marine plant life and beautiful fish. The one section that still troubled him was the Chinese dance. He felt that they hadn't quite found the exact visual correlative, but he did fasten on one element he liked. There's something very valuable in these little mushrooms that look like Chinese characters, Walt said at the story meeting. Take the little mushrooms. There's something there that will be very cute and people will remember it. Every time they look at a mushroom after that, they'll try to see those Chinese. By January 1939, the March processional had gone the way of the overture. The lizards and the frog mandarin were gone, and the mushrooms had become the stars of the segment. The sequence that really fired Walt's imagination, however, was Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Walt had already contacted Stravinsky in April 1938 about the possibility of using the Firebird in the concert feature, 
though that plan was ultimately scrapped. But Stravinsky's name arose again in September when Walt, Taylor, and Stokowski were poring over scores, and Walt suddenly asked if there was a piece of music to which they could stage something of a prehistoric theme with prehistoric animals. Taylor immediately answered, Le Sacre de Plantin. And there's a note there. Dick Humor would suggest that Walt was so ignorant of classical music that when he heard the word sacre, he asked the sock? But the transcript of this session indicates that Walt did no such thing. In fact, he hardly paused. And Walt, without pausing, began to visualize. There would be something terrific in dinosaurs, flying lizards, and prehistoric monsters. When Stokowski had the piece played, Walt was ecstatic. This is marvelous, he said, and once again described prehistoric animals and cavemen. This prehistoric thing would be something entirely different from anything we have done. It would be grotesque and exaggerated. Now Walt was soaring. If the concert feature provided a new direction from his previous work, the Rite of Spring provided a new direction from anything else in the concert feature. When some who had attended the studio concert griped that the piece was too long and downbeat, Walt dismissed their complaints. The happy ending again, and rhapsodized, I felt there is an awful lot that we have wanted to do for a long time, and we have never had the opportunity or excuse. But when you take pieces of music like this, you really have reason to do what we want to do. What Walt wanted to do was trace the history of the earth, beginning with the creation and ending with man triumphing over his environment by using his intellect. Not only animation as an act of creation, but animation as creation itself. It should look, he told one animator, as though the studio has sent an had sent an expedition back to the earth six million years ago, and at Joe Grant's suggestion, he decided to ask the esteemed science fiction writer H.G. Wells to vouch for the film's scientific accuracy. Though Walt later gave up the idea of man's evolution and triumph, one associate said he didn't want to antagonize Christian fundamentalists. He never surrendered the basic idea of a cosmic cataclysm that would test the bounds of animation. That's what I see in the last half, he said. Continual volcanoes. The sea was lashed into a fury. Get the volcanoes and the lava and the sea and everything. The animals trying to escape. End that with the big blow-up somewhere. Something blows up big to finish the fourth side of the record there. In effect, Walt was playing the sorcerer's apprentice, orchestrating the forces of nature. Of course, this was Walt's personal interpretation of the music. Stravinsky had written The Rite of Spring not as a musical rendition of creation or evolution, but as a celebration of pagan Slavonic rituals, and, and some on Walt's own staff felt that reimagining the score this way did an injustice to the music, though Walt tried to justify himself by saying that Stravinsky had once admitted he was striking primitive themes. Others objected that no one would take the dinosaurs seriously and that the segment would be derided. Walt pondered this charge, and for a while he considered making the whole sequence comic. It will be safer, and we will have more fun making it, and I think we will make something good, he told his story department in an abrupt about face, and then began imitating how dinosaurs walked, hobbling around the room with bent knees and sticking out his rump. Within a week, though, Walt had regained his bearings and was back uninhibitedly free-associating to the music. Something like that last whomp 
I feel is a volcano, yet it's on land. I get that, oh, womp on land, but we can look out on the water before this and see water spouts. At the end, he said, there's a sort of stop, pulsating like an old steam engine. Ch, ch, ch. He got himself so worked up as he listened that he blurted, Stravinsky will say, Jesus, I didn't know I wrote that music. By this time, Walt's mother had died and Stokowski had left the studio to fulfill other obligations, though he told Walt that he could always be there within a few hours should Walt need him, and the film was in a temporary limbo. When Stokowski returned in January 1939, Walt was ready. Together, over the next two months, they reviewed the scores, re-examined the continuities, looked at Leica reels, and organized the sequences so that, there could, so that there would be a rhythm to the film. They even decided to remove Cetales and replace it with a segment from Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral, for the Fawn and Centaur section. If you had selected any other Beethoven symphony, Deems Taylor wrote Deems Taylor wrote Stuart Buchanan, who was in charge of the musical rights at the studio. I would say, I would say Nix. Too dangerous. You can't monkey with the master. But the pastoral, he felt, was lighthearted enough for one to take some liberties with it, besides which, Beethoven was a good deal of a pagan himself and would have liked nothing better than to meet up with a gang of fawns and centaurettes. By March, Stokowski had departed once again, this time to return to Philadelphia to record the soundtrack. Walt joined him a few weeks later for the sessions at the Academy of Music, and though the maestro chafed at some of the restrictions, he had to station different sections of the orchestra between partitions for better sound reproduction, and had to listen to a click track as he conducted to keep the tempo for the animation, Stuart Buchan... Stuart Buchanan wrote Walt that Mr. Stokowski is a little difficult at times, but I think we are managing him all right. In fact, by at least one account, Stokowski was happier with the recordings than were Bill Garrity, the studio's engineer, and Leigh Harline, its musical director. In any case, at the end of April, Walt was heading back to the studio with the recordings finished. Now all they had to do was animate the film. But he also had Pinocchio to contend with, and he needed to get it finished before too much time had elapsed and the studio lost its momentum. In just over six months, he had managed to work out the concert feature. Pinocchio had always been a much more stubborn proposition, and even before the key animation had started, the film was already well over budget. He spent much of the summer and early fall sweatboxing scenes and presented a rough assemblage to his employees on the studio soundstage that September. The response was less than enthusiastic, though Walt dismissed most of the criticism. There's certain guys that write you these long letters and they'll criticize everything up and down, Walt sniped, even though this was the most critical voice at the, his was the most critical voice at the studio. And I have known certain ones that go for art, and they don't even know what the hell art is themselves. In any case, he left a few days later with Lillian for a three-week vacation to Hawaii. He would be less dismissive when he returned from his holiday and showed the rough to Joe Rosenberg of the Bank of America and Ned Depinay and George Schaefer of RKO on October 26th. These people had come to examine the picture under special and very unusual circumstances, publicist William Levy wrote Walt later in very unusual circumstances. Oh, wrote Walt later. 
that week, clearly trying to rally him from what had apparently been a less than satisfying preview, and closed, I consider it can and should outgrow Snow White and every normal market by a considerable margin. But Walt himself wasn't so sure. He bragged to the Bambi crew the enforced ex that the enforced extra time on, Pin on Pinocchio, when they had had to reconceptualize the film, had actually paid dividends because the animators, with the benefit of live-action and dialogue tracks, now had a firmer grasp on the characters, firmer even than they had had on the characters in Snow White. Rather than operate within the kind of loose arrangement that had prevailed on Snow White, where animators were often shuttled where they were needed, the directors of Pinocchio were working with the animators in small units on single characters, and even doing their own sweatboxing so that there was never a need to call in, say, Fred Moore, to explain the characters as Walt had had to do on Snow White. Walt was so satisfied with the way the directors and animators had internalized the characters that he thought every feature should be organized this way from now on. A director and a chief animator, responsible for each character working with his own crew of checkers, in-betweeners, and cleanup men. Yet, Walt knew the system sounded better and more efficient than it really was. He admitted that because some animators could only draw Pinocchio and others only the cricket, certain scenes didn't gel so well. Worse, because directors and animators were working exclusively on their own sequences without much coordination among them, they were blindered to the rest of the film, especially since Walt, who had provided this coordination on Snow White, was preoccupied at the time with the concert feature. The whole damn thing was a mixed-up operation, animator Milt Call later said. They had multiple directors, either four units or five directorial units, and then each guy was inclined to, I don't know. His sequence became the most important in the picture. If you were left with all the sequences at the length, of the, at the, length the directors wanted them, the picture would have run six hours. Art director Ken O'Connor agreed that the film was something of a muddle. You had people trying to outdo each other. I always found it remarkable that the features hung together as well as they did. With Pinocchio's release targeted for Christmas 1939, the studio found itself once again racing toward completion. We worked every night all through the preceding months, and we were all just absolutely exhausted, remembered painter Jane Patterson. Though the release was rescheduled to February, the staff still had, work, had to work on Christmas Eve. But that night, at about 9.30, the doors of the ink and paint department opened, and in came Walt, a pork pie hat on his head, silently pushing a laundry cart. In the cart were Christmas presents for the girls, compacts and cigarette cases, each beautifully wrapped. Walt didn't wish anyone a Merry Christmas, Jane Patterson recalled. He didn't chat. He just passed the presents out to all the girls and left, though in doing so, she said, he had lifted their morale considerably. In the end, despite the round-the-clock labor, the studio missed the original Christmas target by over a month. Walt was both weary and discouraged. As he lamented to Gus Van Schmuss of Radio City Music Hall, it's the toughest job the animators have ever had, and I hope I never have to live through another one like it. While Pinocchio was barreling to its finish, Walt was focused on his true passion of the moment, the concert feature. 
Now, in Stokowski's absence, the studio faced an urgent task. It needed a title for the film. Since its inception, it had been called the concert feature or musical feature, but as it proceeded, RKO publicist Hal Horn was pushing for something more euphonious, something he hoped that they might copyright to preclude any other animation studio from using it. Excuse me. His own suggestion was Philharmonic Concert, but Stuart Buchanan decided to conduct a contest at the studio for other possibilities. 259 employees submitted nearly 1,800 titles, including Bach to Stravinsky and Bach, and Hybrowski by Stokowski. Still, the favorite among those supervising the film remained a very early working title, Fantasia. By the... By the time of the contest, even Horn had warned to it. It isn't the word alone, but the meaning we read into it, he wrote Buchanan that May. Writing at the bottom of the same letter, Roy gave his approval. Fantasia has grown on us until it seems appropriate, has a nice sound as an intrig- and is intriguing. Only Stokowski seemed unconvinced. That October, he suggested he and Walt bat around titles themselves by trying to find what we want to say to the public through this picture in its name. Whether or not they did so, the title remained. The film was thenceforth known as Fantasia. By this time, the animation on the film was well underway, and Walt was deeply involved despite periodic detours for Pinocchio and Bambi. He was aiming for greatness. For Toccata and Fugu, he had enlisted a German animator named Oscar Fischinger, who was well-known in animation circles for his abstractions. Though Walt liked Fischinger's work, he wasn't impressed by Fischinger personally. He was a large, pompous man who dressed entirely in black, and Fischinger returned the compliment, complaining that there were no artists at the studio, only cartoonists. Jules Engel, another fine artist who had gotten work on Fantasia, said he had been warned never to use the word abstract at the studio because he was told you're going to have people look at you like you're a strange character. In point of fact, while Walt advised the animators to eschew what he called wild abstraction, he was even more wary of figurative animation for the section. You bring figures in and it gets common, he told a story meeting that August. We're going to sell this thing for $5 million and not cheapen it and sell it for peanuts. Despite Fischinger's and Engel's complaints that Walt wouldn't let go of representation, the opposite was in fact true. In Toccata and Fugu, Walt was not trying to actualize his conscious vision as he had done with Snow White and Pinocchio. He wanted to plumb his psyche. This is more or less picturing subconscious things for you, he told his staff after describing how the music seemed to come to him through the skin. It's a flash of color going through a scene or a movement of a lot of indefinite things. It's the nearest I can come to giving a reason for abstract things. He took the same approach to the Nutcracker Suite. He was looking for something that felt as if it had been dreamed. It's like something you see with your eyes half closed, he told his staff, waxing poetic. You almost imagine them. The leaves begin to look like they're dancing, and the blossoms floating on the water begin to look like ballet girls in skirts. Sometimes at the story meetings, he would play the music and just have the staff listen so they could discover what impressions it evoked in them. 
He always wanted more imagination. His fear was never that the animation would be too artful or esoteric for his audience. His fear was that he was determined to do so much in Fantasia he would overwhelm them. There's a theory I go on that an audience is always thrilled with something new, he said at a story meeting, but fire too many new things at, at them and they become restless. At another meeting, he advised that things must be big, impressive, but simple. Not too much stuff in there. Because Walt could do whatever he pleased without having to worry about a narrative or realistically representative drawings, Fantasia seemed to sail along that spring and summer of 1939 without any of the hurdles that he had encountered on Bambi and Pinocchio, except for one section. When Walt had jettisoned Cidalese for Beethoven's Pastoral, he was fitting a preconception to the music. He had envisioned a section inspired by Greek mythology featuring the gods on Mount Olympus and the mythological creatures at the foot of the mountain, those centaurs and fauns. We don't get too serious because I don't feel anything really serious, he told his storymen that August as they were beginning to flesh out the segment. But he warned that we're not going to be slapstick. There's a certain refinement in the whole thing. Walt was so eager to proceed that he promised to put the entire studio to work on the sequence. Up to this point, Stokowski, who attended many of the story meetings early that spring and late that summer, had been generally supportive of Walt's ideas, even encouraging him to ignore the anticipated criticisms by classical music aficionados. But when it came to the pastoral, Stokowski drew a line. I don't want to come out of my own field. I'm only a musician, Stokowski said disingenuously at a story meeting that July. But I think what you have here, the idea of great mythology is not quite my idea of what this symphony is about. This is a nature symphony. It's called pastoral. He repeated his objection a few weeks later when it was suggested that the nature forms be eliminated altogether. If you are going to leave out the trees and nature forms, he said, you're going to leave out what it is. When Walt seemed to brush aside his complaints, Stokowski, saying that he wanted to be loyal to you and the picture, nevertheless forcefully explained that Beethoven was worshipped and that if they strayed too far from his intent, they would be asking for trouble from offended music enthusiasts. On this point, Walt held his ground with Stokowski. He didn't want to put nature up on the screen, he rebutted, because he thought it would be too conventional to have bucolic scenes. I defy anybody to go out and shoot centaurs or gods making a storm, he said. That's our medium, and that's how I feel about this. He thereby expressed, intentionally or not, that the real theme of the film was power, his power, and he insisted that in any case, the liberties he was taking were slight. Instead of being about the woods outside Vienna, as Beethoven had intended, the sequence would be about the Elysian fields, and instead of country dancing, it would have Bacchus. He brings all the centaurs and centaurettes to his gay party, and they are having a gay time, and he made a pronouncement that critics would later use to lacerate him for his alleged Philistinism and sense of cultural imperialism. I think this thing will make Beethoven.
Even as Walt was finalizing Fantasia, he still had Bambi to resolve. That spring, he had begun pressing the crew to accelerate production. He expected them to have the death of Bambi's mother animated and rough by May, and the entire film finished by August. The problem was that the crew on Seward Street, largely left to their own devices while Walt worked on Pinocchio and Fantasia, had yet to determine how they were going to proceed. After nearly a year and a half of Walt's telling them to ruminate on the characters before animating them, he was now directing them to begin animating sections as soon as possible, review them in the Leica reels, and then revise them. Only then would they bring on the key animators, the best animal animators we have in the studio, as Percy Pierce put it, to set the characters in motion. As Pierce described the process at a story meeting that April, the Leica reels gave them an opportunity to experiment and discard what didn't work. There is no formula for any of it, he said, essentially admitting that they hadn't licked the project. It's only trial and error. By late August, Walt, who said he didn't want to sit in on long story meetings, had reviewed the first four Leica reels and he wasn't happy. Some of the action was too slow. There was too little tension in a scene when man enters the forest and the voices were inadequate. Still, he instructed the crew to begin animating in the hope that the characters would thereby be solidified. We found, th we found that out in Pinocchio, he told the staff, in a reversal of the method on Snow White and of what he had been telling the Bambi crew that you don't find your character until you begin to do a little animation on them. But the question of how to animate lingered. Did you assign an animator to a character throughout the film as they had done on Pinocchio? Or did you assign him to a single scene in which he would draw all the characters? Did you divide the film into sequences with their own story crews and animation crews? Or did you have a single story crew and animation crew working on the whole film? The answers came during a day-long meeting in the sweatbox on September 1, 1939, the day Germany invaded Poland, an event that seemed to have no effect on the studio. Walt, acting on a suggestion from Milt Call, who protested that he had grown stale animating only Pinocchio, decided to break the logjam by assigning Call, Fred Moore, and Frank Thomas to the project as a team because they have a very analytical mind, even though Call and Thomas were still preoccupied with Pinocchio and wouldn't be available for another two months. A week later, Larson had replaced Moore, but the idea still held that instead of parceling out the animation to individuals, as Walt had done on Snow White and Pinocchio, and as he was doing on Fantasia, these three animators acting together would control the entire animation of the film, conceptualizing the characters, blocking the action, and then supervising the additional animators needed to finish the project. Again, reversing course, he advised that they begin as they had on Snow White by concentrating on a single scene, the scene in which Bambi learns to walk, then master it as a guide for the animators to come. It was a longer process, just letting the animators draw and animate until they got the feel of the characters. But Walt had already conceded that Bambi wasn't going to be ready anytime soon, and that Fantasia would be released after, ba after Pinocchio, and that he would then release what he called feature shorts, which would be three long cartoons packaged as, packaged as a feature, 
and then another feature, and then maybe, he said, Bambi. There would be a disaster here if we started rushing everybody on this picture, he told the staff. When Call asked Walt when he anticipated that actual production would start, Walt replied that it would start whenever Call and his team felt ready. They felt they were ready to start. He was through pushing them. It's wise to move easy, he said, citing his experience on Pinocchio, and everybody get a chance to feel what they're doing. The animators used some of the time to study deer. In Snow White, Eric Larson commented the deer had been sacks of wheat because the staff hadn't yet acquired the technique to draw them properly. For Bambi, the animators spent three or four months just concentrating on drawing deer. Walt had collected thousands of feet of film of deer, borrowing some from other studios and hiring a photographer of his own, Maurice Day, to go to Maine to shoot studies, including one of a fawn being born. Quite an assortment of deer stuff, as Walt put it. To provide even more guidance, Day eventually sent two does to the studio, where they were kept in a pen outside the animation building, excuse me, which led to adventures when a rutting buck descended and had to be lassoed by an, assent by an assistant director, and then when the deer themselves escaped into the hills and the animators were sent to recover them. Meanwhile, artist Rico Lebrun conducted classes in the late afternoon to analyze deer anatomy. He had gotten a fresh carcass from a forest ranger, and at each session he would remove another layer of the skin or muscle until he finally reached the bone, by which time Eric Larson was the only one of the staff who could tolerate the stench, so Larson made drawings and distributed them. He just drilled us and drilled us to understand what the anatomy was, what the bone structure was, what happened when a leg lifted, what happened when the body weight went on that leg, Larson said of Lebrun's classes. For most of this time, Walt paid scant attention to Bambi, but, Peer but Percy Pierce, the nominal supervisor, obviously taking his cues from Walt, moved so slowly and fixated on, each on such small details that he was beginning to frustrate the staff, and Walt assigned Dave Hand, who had coordinated Snow White, to oversee Pierce. Hand was correct when he later said that some major decisions were made without Walt's input. It was Ham Lusk, for example, who suggested at a meeting that September that they centralize one of the bunnies to act as a kind of guide, just as Jiminy Cricket had done in Pinocchio. That gave Bambi's friend Thumper a much enlarged role and changed Bambi's introduction to the forest. As Thomas and Johnston later described it, now the first part of the picture began to be about wonderful children who happened to be animals, innocent and unaware of the realities of their futures. But contrary to Ham, Walt did spend a considerable amount of time that November and December reviewing continuities, and if he did not participate as actively as he had on Snow White or Pinocchio, he was nevertheless the primary sensibility who could devise an entire sequence in a sudden burst of inspiration. In the middle of one meeting, Walt abruptly interjected what he called just the flash that came to my mind here and started describing a new opening for the film. Say we open up with morning in the forest, everything is getting up, and then you come to the old owl and he's going to sleep, and then we introduce the squirrel and the chipmunk. We introduce all the characters we want to in that morning. 
And then this noise breaks loose that it's here. It's happened where they begin flying around and the whole damn woods begins to fuss and swarm with the birth of Bambi. The final version was very much as Walt described it at the meeting. A few weeks later, musing on the winter sequence, he came up with the idea of Bambi on the ice pond. He has never been on ice before. It's like putting Pluto on ice with skates on him. He just can't stand up. He's having a hell of a time. This scene, too, wound up in the final film. Stay tuned for more next Monday.